us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything, in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It may not be apparent, but um, we have before us this morning one of the most glorious pieces of literature in the world. The great preacher Dr Martin Lloyd-Jones referred to it as God's masterpiece. The first chapter, or the first part of the chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. And this morning I want to speak on the subject of blessings. Um, I'd like to preface what I have to say by saying that um, this comes at short notice. It's very sorry the Jay's a bit under the weather, but um, when we become believers in Jesus Christ, we take upon ourselves the burden of being his ambassadors. We are all ambassadors for Christ in our own way. And from my earliest days, I have always relished the opportunity and considered it life's greatest privilege to be able to speak a few words concerning the glory of him whom we love and worship. When I was young, I had a certain amount of autonomy and a certain amount of independence, but as most married men know, when you say I do, you lose a lot of that. (laughs) Some 33 years later, I don't know how, but I've also got two adult sons who tell me what to do and have taken away more of my autonomy. (laughs) When they hear that I have been asked to speak in church, they say, send me through the text so I can check it for you. So, and then of course I've acquired two daughters-in-law and now I've got four grandchildren and all these things have whittled away my independence to the point where I'm really just a shadow of what I've (laughs) formerly lost. Therefore, uh, the purpose of this is if you don't like the shirt, complain to Karen. (laughs) If you disagree with anything I say, talk to Luke. 
If you don't like the format or anything in the content, Luke's your man, Ben's your man. Any other problems, talk to Kimberly or Amy. If, however, perchance, there is anything edifying and helpful, I'm your man. (laughs) So we begin. Yes, I'll leave the grandchildren out for now. So the human race is hardwired to function on a meritorious principle commonly expressed by the phrase, there are no free lunches. Our economies work on the principle that success comes to the deserving, the talented and the hard-working. We give awards and titles only to those we acknowledge as deserving of our approval and accolades. We give medals to the brave and the high achievers and laurel wreaths and trophies to the winners. This is not a criticism but merely a recognition that all over the world this is the natural order of things. Our world functions on a meritorious system. This meritorious system is hardwired no more graphically than into the world's religions. All religious systems, when examined, work on this principle. When things are going good, the gods are favouring us. But when good fortune fails and the gods are angry, they need to be placated with a better performance, more exertion or some forms of costly sacrifice and offerings. I use the word religion advisedly for occasionally over the years when I've had the opportunity to speak from this pulpit, I have attempted to draw a distinction between all the world's religions and Christianity. I have tried to assert that rather than be a religion, Christianity is the complete opposite. It is in fact the complete antithesis of religion. Christianity is based not on meritorious but unmerited grace, which is the shocking alternative, so foreign to our natural senses that it could never have had a human origin. It is divine. Stand fast, therefore, in liberty wherewith Christ has set you free and never again submit to a yoke of bondage. With these words of the Apostle Paul from Galatians, Christianity, correctly understood, announces to the world its absolute repudiation of religion. Religion reaches for God, whilst in Christianity, God, with inexpressible humility, descends and reaches out to man. Religion requires sheep to die for the shepherd, but with Christianity, the shepherd dies for the sheep. Before sin and death, religion is utterly bankrupt, but in Christ, both sin and death are magnificently triumphed over. Religion enshrines truth in dogma, In Christianity, truth resides in a man, Jesus Christ. Religion enslaves its devoted devotees in endless vain prescriptions. Christ eternally exonerates and liberates. So, I said I want to talk about blessings. It is a word that is deeply entrenched in the reservoir of our Christian jargon and is constantly employed 
without serious consideration as to its meaning or application. I don't want to change the habits of a lifetime or remove its employment from our cards and letters and I certainly don't want you to think that I disagree with or am anti its use in our everyday language of support and encouragement but I do hope that in a few minutes what I have to say will be both challenging and helpful. When the President of the United States says, God bless the United States of America, I'm sure we all know what is meant. Power, wealth, international influence and prestige and security. When we say, God bless you, if we are honest, what we really mean is, I hope things go well for you. If we mean, I hope that God will physically bless you, have we really considered what the implications of that is? When we say God has blessed me with a wonderful family, what we mean is we are grateful. But when we ascribe it to God's blessing, what is the message we give to the person next to us who has lost their only child? When we say God has blessed me with good health, what are we saying to the one who has just received really bad news from their doctor? What are the assumptions we are making and even more importantly, what are we saying about God who indiscriminately gives to some riches and to others grinding poverty, to some peace and to others war? By what criteria does God distribute his blessings? This is a challenge. I do not need to expand or labour this matter for we all have these challenging thoughts and have struggled with them during our lives. It would be the height of insolence for me to say to someone who lost their home in the red zone, it was a real blessing from God that our home wasn't damaged in the quakes. What I would like to do this morning is to briefly look at the use of the word blessing and its variations in both the Old and New Testament and highlight an observation that I think is worthy of us all taking seriously. So firstly, in the Old Testament, I'm sure that we will all be familiar with these subdivisions as soon as I mention them. Bless, blessing and blessed are used in the Old Testament in four different ways. So firstly, it is used to imply spiritual blessedness on the basis of a person's right relationship with God. And a good example of its use in this context is from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. It's got nothing to do with a person's wealth or prosperity but has to do with God's attitude towards that person. The second example of its use in the Old Testament, and this is one very common to us, is where it is used in the sense of praise and adoration and worship. And a good example from Psalm 78, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone doeth wondrous things, and blessed be his glorious name forever. Now the next two examples, the third and the fourth, are different. The third example is <clears throat> blessings involving material benefits. 
and prosperity on the basis of divine prerogative. And a very good example is the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 where God says to him, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And of course we know that Abraham became very, very rich, had great flocks and herds and was respected by all who encountered him. And of course the fourth example, and this is the one that I most particularly want to draw our attention to, is the particular blessings that accrued to the nation of Israel on the basis of the Mosaic Covenant which they entered into at the time of the great exodus. And uh, these are material blessings and a typical example of a passage is from Deuteronomy. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, the Lord will open to you his good treasury in heaven and give you rain in seasons and bless all the work of your hands and you shall lend to many nations and borrow from none and you shall tend always upwards and never downwards. They were extraordinary promises that were made to the ancient Hebrew people. Extraordinary promises. The point, however, that I want us to notice the most in this is that this fourth usage of the word blessing in the Old Testament is used over 220 times in the Old Testament text, whilst the other ones altogether are not used that amount of times. And as a consequence, those of us who are well familiar with the broad trajectory of the Old Testament had this concept of blessings and prosperity on the basis of physical matters that kind of seep into our understandings almost like osmosis. We carry this concept of physical blessings around with us which can only be found in the Old Testament. It is a word... uh, So let me just uh, get back to my text. Um, As a consequence... In the Old Testament, the bulk of the meaning attached to blessing is material abundance, protection, health and happiness. Further to this, the principle of material blessings is alluded to many times in the prophetic and poetic literature of the Old Testament. And a good example is Psalm 128. Blessed are all those who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. You will eat the fruit of your labour, Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Yes, this is the blessings for the man who fears the Lord. It was intrinsic to the ancient Hebrew mindset that obedience to God would bring physical blessings. In our day, if we ask to explain what we mean by God has blessed him, we will almost always reply with some indication of success, reputation, ability or achievement. The reason we do this is because we have, many of us from our childhood, been so influenced by the themes of the Old Testament that they seep into our understanding unchallenged. In our Lord's many encounters with people during his public ministry, we see this matter of blessings for the godly surface on a number of occasions in the cultural mindset of the people. A very good example is when Jesus said 
it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than to pass through the eye of a needle. Actually, I got that the wrong way around. Pass through the eye of the kingdom of heaven. However, we know that we know the text very well. Okay, his disciples were utterly astonished at this saying. Utterly astonished, and they said, "Who then can be saved?" For in their mind, the wealth of the rich young ruler was synonymous with God's blessing in his life. Conversely, lepers and the lame were suffering either because of sin or disobedience assumed in either theirs or their parents' lives. After all, did not the second command say that God will visit the iniquity of the sins of the fathers up until the third and fourth generation of them that hate me? So it was logical to think that if you were a lame person, maybe it was your parents' sins that caused it or your grandfather's. The story of the poor widow and her mite was a potent reminder that God's principle of judgment is completely different to ours. He looks upon the heart whilst we look upon externals. And now we're going to break away from the Old Testament and at this point there is a massive and significant change in the focus of the meaning of the word blessings. An examination of the entire text of the New Testament will reveal that never once did its writers ever use the word blessing in the Old Testament context of material benefits. This is, a, this is quite phenomenal when you consider that over 220 times it was used in the Old Testament to mean this and it was the mindset of these authors of the New Testament to naturally think this way. Much of the Old Testament touches, uh, focuses on physical things but in the New Testament the focus is on spiritual things and therefore we read, do not lay up for yourself treasures upon the earth and we read, set your affections in heaven where Christ reigns. The ancient Hebrew had an earthly calling. He had an earthly king. He had a physical nation, a physical land, a physical temple. He was promised physical abundance and security and health and good harvests. But to the Christian, none of this applies. It has been said that if it could be demonstrated that God looked after Christians more than anybody else, people would flock to the church in uncontrollable numbers. Isn't that interesting? If it could be demonstrated, people would flock to the church in uncontrollable numbers. So two um, slides that I want to point out with respect to the New Testament use of the word blessings. It is used in the same sense as the first example in the Old Testament to imply blessedness on the basis of a person's right relationship with God. But here is an extraordinary distinction. Whereas in the Old Testament blessings were good things, now in the New Testament we find blessed are the merciful and the pure in heart and those who are persecuted, those who hunger for righteousness, those who are poor. And the second uh, dominant use of the word blessing in the New Testament, which is <coughs> the Greek word eulageo, uh, which, from which we get our word eulogy to speak well of, uh, we find that it is employed in the meaning of to bless those who persecute you, that is to speak well of them, or to bless God as in the sense of worship and praise. And so 
our very text this morning began with that beautiful phrase, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are the ways in which the word blessed is used in the New Testament. Now the other slide that I wanted to look at um, which relates to the very first sentence of our text this morning is praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And I want us to notice four things. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. There is nothing left. Every spiritual blessing... We are to notice that they are spiritual, they are not physical. We should notice that they are in the heavenly realm, they are heavenly blessings, they are not earthly, and that they are in Christ. These blessings are only secured for us if we are in Christ. Moving on then, I'm going to briefly go through the text of this magnificent passage and point out the sevenly heavenly spiritual blessings that accrue to all believers in Christ. The first one, he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. This is the doctrine of predestination and election. It has perplexed the greatest minds for the last 2,000 years and suffice to say here that in every age God has maintained a witness to himself. He is sovereign over history and how that sovereignty is worked out remains within the councils of the Trinity. The second spiritual blessing is that we have been called to be holy and blameless in his sight. This is the doctrine of sanctification. We are called saints and we are told in the New Testament that we have been perfected in Christ. Ben reminded us last week that because we are in Christ we are counted as being clothed in his righteousness. We are the righteousness of God in Christ, a brand new creation in him. No matter how we may personally feel about ourselves or our performance in our life, this is an established fact. We give glory to God when we accept it and rejoice in it. The third spiritual blessing is he has predestined us for adoption as his sons. Our new adoption as children of God, citizens of heaven, and this relationship as children we have with our heavenly father is a most extraordinary and wonderful heavenly blessing. Now to blessing number four. And I hasten to add that all these seven blessings have numerous books written about them. So on every one of these seven blessings, many sermons could be preached. So blessing number four, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. And this brings up the vast um, sort of panoply of the doctrine of redemption that finds its genesis in the book of Genesis and its end in the book of Revelation, that through Christ and the shedding of his blood, we have forgiveness. The doctrine of atonement and propitiation and justification. Those of us who were brought up in the church many years ago when we had the old 1662 service will remember 
that in the communion service the minister used to say, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. It's a great old theological term with enormous depth to it. Now, number five. He has made known to us with all wisdom and understanding the mystery of his will to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. My RSV version says, for he has made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite in him things in heaven and things on the earth. This whole doctrine of, the, of, of God's plan for the redemption of the created order um, covers all the prophetic books of the whole of scripture. It's a vast subject to enter into. And <clears throat> blessing number six. In him we were chosen in order that we might be for the praise of his glory. This is a truly beautiful verse and it implies our inheritance in Christ. And when we study the concept or the the teachings about inheritance in the Bible, we discover that there are two inheritances. One is the inheritance that we have in Christ, but even more magnificently, and one that we probably don't think of very much, but the, the scriptures teach that God in Christ has his inheritance in us. He has so inextricably bound himself to us as his people because we are in Christ that he sees us as his inheritance. It is is inexpressibly beautiful that God would consider that that he would have his inheritance in us. And finally, uh, blessing number seven, which has to do with us being marked with the Holy Spirit uh, who is the deposit and guarantee of our inheritance This opens up the whole area of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit with respect to his ministry in the world, in the life of the believer and with respect to our eternal security. In these ten verses we have the most wonderful summary of the full scope of Christian doctrine in relation to redemption. These are redemption truths. And they're magnificently summarised in this short passage of scripture in Ephesians chapter 1. It's as though the master artist with one sweep of the brush painted this magnificent condensed picture for us all to see. It begins in the eternal counsels of God and it ends in the eternal counsels of God. These are the true blessings of the New Testament. They are spiritual and they are heavenly. I've just put up the the next slide because I wanted us to see the deliberate choice of words that God uses to drive home these beautiful truths to us. He chose us. He destined us in love. It was according to his pleasure and his will. He freely bestowed these things upon us. They come from the riches of his grace. He lavished them upon us. It's just this extraordinary abundance of God's goodness. There was, according to his purpose and plan, we have been destined and appointed. We have been sealed 
and we have been guaranteed a glorious inheritance. And finally, in the last slide, I wanted to just uh, play around with the idea of an acrostic and so you'll see using the words for Ephesians, we are elected and perfected heirs of eternal salvation with insight into his eternal purposes through his abundant love with never-ending security. The divine inspiration of scripture is sometimes seen in what is omitted. It is remarkable that all the authors of the New Testament documents lived under the law of Moses in a culture fashioned by those laws for 15 centuries and yet never once, never once did they allow the concept of blessings for obedience to penetrate any of their writings, their histories or their letters. It is a remarkable omission worthy of our attention. In our culture, that would be the equivalent of writing a history of New Zealand and making no reference to the Indigenous people, the Maori Wars, the Treaty or the Continental Wars. One would have to assume that the author was either completely ignorant or had deliberately made those omissions for a specific purpose. In the matter of physical blessings, the revelation of the New Testament is that the seven blessings I have outlined are so inexpressibly magnificent that all else pales into insignificance. Rather than therefore expecting God to alter or improve our situation by physical blessings, like we are often inclined to think or to pray for, the words of the Apostle challenge us. In circumstances that cannot be altered, his advice is... I have learned the secret of facing plenty and want, hunger and abundance, and not to complain but to be content. He doesn't mean rejoice in slavery, imprisonment or misery, but to rejoice in that which is infinitely higher than worldly troubles, that we are in Christ and that being in him we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. However, the word blessing may be used in the common idioms of our day, all opinions must ultimately be brought to the bar of scripture and in this context I have outlined as best I can in limited time what is the teaching of the New Testament on this subject. Under Moses, there were many promises of blessings that were physical and earthly in character. But in the New Testament, all blessings are spiritual and heavenly. They are the common heritage of every believer in Christ. They cannot be earned or solicited. They cannot be added to or taken away from. The blessings of God for the Christian are lavished upon us with boundless and excessive selfless generosity, not by circumstance, not by condition, nor by spiritual or intellectual apprehension of their existence. They do not become ours by religious experience or stimulus. They cannot be dispensed or altered by any man and they are not withheld or diminished either through failure, weakness, simpleness of mind or even through sin. They are ours by sovereign decree and even if no one had ever explained them to us, 
our ignorance of them in no way would diminish or influence their eternal impact on our lives. They are the treasury of the glory of the gospel and the question begs asking, what else could we possibly expect? And so in the full blaze of the light of these redemption truths, the seven heavenly spiritual blessings, the great apostle goes on in this passage to pray and he says, for this reason, for this reason, in the light of these astonishing truths about our redemption, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you remembering you in my prayers that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you have been called, that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power in us who believe. You know, many years ago, about 30 years ago, I would think, in the old red church down the road, we had a, an assistant minister, an elderly man, a very gracious man, uh, the Reverend Will Childs. And one night in the 7 o'clock service, he put his hand in his pocket and he pulled out something. He held it in his fist and he pulled this little piece of white tape out between his fingers and he read, number one, God loves you. Pulled it a bit further and said, um, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He pulled it a bit further and it said, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins on the basis of Christ's death on the cross. Pulled it a bit further and said, um, um, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your whole household. Then he opened his hand and in it was a walnut shell and it had a little tiny crank handle on it and he wound the crank handle and the tape wound back into the shell, see, like a tape. And then he said, there is the gospel in a nutshell. Laughter